The Mayday Murders is copyright 2005 by Scott Wittenberg. To learn more about this and other novels by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Chapter 1 Sam Middleton held the door open for his ex-wife and daughter before joining them as they sauntered mechanically down the steps of the funeral home. Leaves of brilliant colors blew in every direction as they made their way across the parking lot to Anne's white Toyota Camry. Sam stood and watched Anne search absent-mindedly in her purse for the car keys, the tears welling up in her eyes for the third or fourth time that day. He glanced over at Amy, who seemed oblivious to her mother's grief, and Sam silently wished that she would at least make an effort to console her. But Amy simply stood there apathetically, and he was once again reminded of how dramatically his little girl had changed since the divorce last spring. She seemed almost a stranger now, no longer the sweet, freckle-faced little kid who was so considerate of others and nearly always obeyed her parents' demands without question. Amy had since become defiant and selfish, seemingly overnight, and was so wrapped up in her own little world that it was downright scary. Through some force unknown to him, his little bundle of joy had evolved into a bitter, incorrigible young lady of fourteen, a keg of dynamite just waiting to blow up at the slightest provocation. Anne suddenly broke down and started weeping. Sam stepped over and put his arms around her comfortingly, feeling a little awkward as he did so. "'Why, Sam?' she sobbed. "'Why did Marcia have to die?' She was so full of life, so happy, and now she's... There now, dear, he consoled. Please don't get yourself all worked up again. And so violently. Who in the world would want to do that to her? Marcia wouldn't harm a fly. She was so, so kind. And Dave, and little Tommy, what will they do now? Sam hugged her tightly, patted her back. I don't know, Anne. It's certainly an awful situation. I guess I'll just have to try to put all the pieces together and get on with their lives without her, just like the rest of us will have to do. She buried her face in his chest, and Sam's heart bled for her. He had known that Anne was going to take it hard when he'd called to give her the grim news of Marcia Bradley's murder, but he had never conceived that it would absolutely devastate her like this. She and Marcia had been best friends since grade school, and had been practically joined at the hip in the years since. That was a lot of memories shared together a lot of closeness, and for Marcia Bradley to die so abruptly like that, and in such a gruesome, hideous way. I hope they find the bastard who did this to her and string him up by the balls, Anne declared bitterly. She pulled away and faced Sam, her eyes moist with tears. Do you know if they've found any clues yet? Sam stared at her gaunt, lovely face and replied, When I checked with Roger this morning, he told me they still don't have much to go on. Little Tommy is still in shock and no one's going to interrogate him until he calms down. The shrink seems to think that could take a while, and since Tommy is the only witness they know of so far, Roger doesn't think that much of anything is going to break until they can question him. Poor kid. I guess he's so traumatized over this that they've had to practically force him to eat, and he still hasn't spoken a word to a soul, not even to his father. Is Dave going to be able to handle all of this, you think? He looked absolutely off on there. Sam shook his head slowly. He is taking it pretty hard, no doubt. My guess is that once the shock is worn off, he'll be out for blood. I just hope they find this asshole soon. The whole town's pretty stirred up, as you can imagine. Probably already forming a lynch mob as we speak, he added with a wry grin. Anne managed a weak smile. 
God, am I ever glad I don't live in this little Peyton place anymore. Sam ignored her remark. The police are advising everyone to be on the lookout for anything or anyone suspicious and recommending that parents set up a voluntary 10 o'clock curfew for their kids. Are you covering the story, or is that a stupid question? She asked. Yes, to both, Sam replied dryly. Well, keep me informed. I want to know everything that happens, okay? Sure, Tom nodded. He let go of her and turned to Amy. Why so quiet, kiddo? Amy shrugged her shoulders. Nothing to say. I just want to go home, she answered. Sam went over and kissed his daughter on the cheek and whispered in her ear. Look after your mother, okay, sweetie? This has been really tough on her, and she needs all the emotional support she can get right now. Think you can do that for your old man? Amy remained expressionless and replied, Okay, Dad. Sam held her bright green eyes in his a moment and could feel the familiar pang of remorse gnaw at him, just as it always did whenever he was about to say goodbye to his estranged family. He missed them both more than he wanted to admit to himself. Amy, as if reading his mind, suddenly gave him a big bear hug. I miss you, Dad. I miss you too, honey. Then, as quickly as it began, this rare magical moment ended. Can we go now, Mom? Anne unlocked the car door. We're on our way. As Amy walked around to the other side of the car, Sam stood and watched as Anne got in. Be careful, he said. I'll call you as soon as I learn anything. Anne looked up at Sam and squinted from the glare of the sun coming from behind him. Thanks, Sam. Take care of yourself. He nodded and waited until Amy was inside, then said, You take care of each other, okay? We will, Dad. Bye. Sam closed the door and stood by as Anne started the engine and backed the car out. He waved to them as they pulled away. As he sauntered across the lot toward his gray Grand Cherokee, Sam's head was reeling from the events of the day. He reached the jeep, climbed in, and fired up the engine. He felt numb and more alone than he'd felt in a long time. Marcia Bradley's rape, murder, and ensuing memorial service were agonizing enough. But seeing how hard Anne was taking it, then watching her drive away into the sunset along with his kid, leaving him here in this godforsaken town while they headed to a new city and a new life, was just about more than he could handle right now. Although Columbus was only a couple of hours away, it might as well be somewhere in China. Sam floored the accelerator and turned into the alley, turned on to Grant Street and headed north. Traffic was light for a Saturday afternoon, but then it was always light in this little burg of 21,000. One of Smithtown's few assets was its intrinsic charm, the rolling foothills that virtually surrounded the entire town, the fine old houses with their neatly manicured grounds, and the nearby state forest located to the west, just outside the city limits. Otherwise, the town was a bust, an economically anemic place that was swiftly heading in the wrong direction, as towns go, shrinking instead of growing. Smithtown was comprised for the most part of white middle-class folks, coexisting with a smattering of impoverished but determined southern Ohio hillbilly farmers. Minorities existed to a considerably lesser degree, with the Indian and Asian American professionals, mostly physicians, equaling, if not exceeding, the town's black population. Smithtown's county hospital seemed to draw immigrants in search of a place to practice medicine, like a streetlight to moths. As he waited impatiently for a traffic light to change, Sam wondered for the umpteenth time why he remained in this depressing place. 
With the exception of his job as a reporter at the Smithtown Observer, there was virtually nothing else holding him here, especially now that he had split up with Anne. Even his parents had moved on, happily retired and basking in the Florida sunshine. His game plan had fallen apart, he admitted to himself grimly. He had always had this crazy dream of being a novelist, and after having gotten his first bestseller published, moving his family to New England to spend the rest of his life writing novels in his den in front of a roaring fire in the fireplace. Now, at forty, he no longer had a family to move anywhere, and his bestseller was yet to be written, stalled on page 63, where it had lain dormant for months. Tom hung a ride onto Court Street and heaved a long sigh. The divorce had been the beginning of his undoing, no doubt about it. He missed Dan, and he missed his kid. His motivation to write was shot. His two greatest sources of inspiration, now in a car heading north on Route 23, en route to Columbus, to a new city and a new life. One mistake was all it had taken to end their once happy marriage of seventeen years. He'd fucked up royally by letting his dick do his thinking for him. One measly night in the sack with that beautiful young thing had blown everything all to hell. Had he seen the consequences beforehand, he would never have let it happen. But it was too late now. Anne had been relentlessly unforgiving and hadn't budged an inch. She had surprised him. He had never realized that Anne was so strong-willed. The joke was on him. Sam shut his eyes for a moment in an effort to exercise these nagging thoughts. When he opened them again, he focused on the road and thought about the matter at hand, Marcia Bradley's murder. He needed to call Roger and set up a time that he could visit the Bradley residence and take some shots for the article, just in case he needed them. Smithtown Police Detective Roger Haxton was Sam's best friend and had been for practically four decades. He had been with the Smithtown PD for twenty years and was one hell of a good cop. When he was sober, that is. Roger had a serious drinking problem, and many were the times that Sam had to bail him out of the fixes he'd got himself into. His hangovers were legendary, and he frequently missed entire days of work as a result of them. Sometimes he'd even get himself blasted while on duty, which never failed to create some major problems. But the Smithtown Police Department was very small, only fifteen officers and patrolmen in total, and they needed Roger Haxton badly enough to overlook his shortcomings. Besides that, Roger Haxton was second in command, so they more or less had to. His only superior, Chief Frank Thompson, admired and respected Roger's skills as a detective, and tolerated his tardiness and occasional inebriation on the job up to a point, his only stipulation being that Roger not make the chief's special leniency toward him public knowledge. Sam often tagged along with Roger on his assignments. It wasn't a particularly unusual situation. Cops and journalists frequently worked together closely to a degree, even in a little town like Smithtown. What made Sam and Roger's relationship unique was the way in which they complemented each other. They were a good team, and often aided one another in achieving their respective goals. Besides the benefits attained from their working relationship, Sam had another reason for occasionally joining forces with his friend. It was interesting as hell. Murder cases were few and far between in Smithtown, but there were plenty of other crimes going on all the time. Dope deals gone bad, burglaries, armed robberies, bar stabbings and shootings, a pretty lively town for its size, crime-wise. The faltering economy seemed to have a lot to do with it. Sam pulled into the parking lot of the Observer and shut off the engine. The Observer had no Sunday paper, and everyone had already cleared out for the day. 
He got out and walked over to the side entrance of the massive stone column building and entered. He turned right and made a beeline through the ornate lobby to the elevator and pressed the button for the third floor. When he reached this floor, Tom strode past the reception desk to the editorial offices. He queued up a pot on the bun before entering his office and switching on the overhead lights. Sam stepped over to the window behind his desk and opened the blinds, staring out at the view outside. Directly below him he could see downtown Smithtown, five square blocks or so of dead or dying businesses that were slowly but surely being strangled by the slumping economy. Further north, beyond the railroad tracks, was the hilltop section of town where the majority of Smithtown's less unfortunate resided. It sprawled either way for a few miles, bounded by the Cider River to the west and a range of foothills to the east. It was early October, and autumn was already making its debut in southern Ohio. The trees were flecked in bright shades of reds and yellows, making the view even more impressive than usual. In another week or two, Sam thought, the hills would look as though they were on fire as fall peaked out. Sam turned around, rolled his swivel chair out from under his desk, and sat down. He switched on the computer, located the police file in Marsha Bradley in a drawer, and pulled out its contents. Sam felt a cold chill run down his spine as he stared incredulously at the 8x10 glossy photograph on top. It was an image of Marcia Bradley lying nude on her living room floor, face up, her eyes frozen in a hideous expression of terror. A narrow red welt running across the width of her neck where she had been strangled to death was crisply rendered in the photo, as were her breasts with the words Mayday, one word per breast, meticulously inscribed in red lipstick by her murderer. And, as if all of this wasn't appalling enough, Marcia's assailant had then proceeded to cram the lipstick vial into her vagina, its end barely visible between her splayed legs. The autopsy performed on Marcia's body had determined that this final gruesome act had been performed after her assailant had strangled her to death. No weapon had been found at the scene, but the coroner's hunch was that Marcia had most likely been strangled with a lamp cord or similar object. Prior to her murder, the victim had been raped and sodomized, and her assailant's semen and hair samples had been sent to a lab pending analysis. Sam laid the photograph aside and studied the police report. The victim, Marcia Lynn Bradley, knee Stilson, had been a white female, five foot six inch, hundred and eighteen pound, brown eyes, thirty-nine years old. Her husband, Dr. David Lee Bradley, had discovered her body on the night of October 8th at 9.47 p.m. The victim's son, Tommy, age five, had been present in the house when the body was discovered, locked in his bedroom closet. The child had been in a state of severe shock and literally unable to speak when police arrived at the scene. There had been no signs of physical trauma to the child. Preliminary investigation revealed no apparent signs of forced entry, and nothing had been stolen. Odder still was the fact that there had been no signs of a struggle at the scene. The entire house had been searched and dusted for fingerprints, and it was later determined that none of the prints found belonged to anyone other than the victim, her immediate family, and Mary Willis, the housekeeper. The lipstick vial was confirmed to have belonged to the victim. No usable prints had been found on it. The victim's husband had been questioned. Dr. David Bradley had reportedly been at a friend's house, Matt Timmons, helping him install drywall in his garage. David Bradley had left the house at around 6.30 p.m. shortly after dinner and had remained at the Timmons residence until he had returned home and discovered his wife's body. Bradley's alibi is corroborated after an investigation of Matt Timmons. 
David Bradley, at least at this point in the case, was not being considered a suspect in the murder. Sam glanced down at the right-hand margin near the bottom of the report and saw Roger Hagstrom's barely legible scrawl. No clues, no leads. He could almost read his friend's frustration in the bold pen-strokes. Sam had been out of town the night the Marsh had been murdered. When he arrived back in town shortly after midnight, he had played back the message Roger had left on his answer machine advising him to get in touch with him as soon as possible, that something really big had happened. Sam had promptly called the police department to learn that Roger was at the Bradley home investigating a murder. Sam had arrived at the Bradleys just as they were wheeling Marsh's body out. Roger Hagstrom had been sober and in rare form when Sam had gotten there. Roger told Sam he had a gut feeling that Marsh's assailant was going to be tough to nab. Besides the fact that the police had so little to go on, his bet was that the murderer wasn't a local man. He based this on what he already knew about Marcia Bradley. She had been an extraordinarily friendly, easy-going woman who was well-liked by everyone in town who had known her, and odds were that she had no enemies capable of disliking her enough to commit such a heinous assault. Her rape and murder, in fact, appeared to have been premeditated, well thought out and executed without a hitch. Of course, Roger had gone on to say, someone local may have done it. Nothing was impossible, but the odds were stacked against this. He conceded that until there was some kind of motive established, the murderer could theoretically have been just about anyone. There were a couple of other things that had bothered Roger as well. One was the message the assailant had left on her body, May Day. God only knew what it meant, he had told Sam, but it implied something that he hoped wasn't the case here, a serial killing. It was often standard M.O. for a serial killer to leave either an object or a message of some kind behind for the police and the rest of the world to try and figure out. It was all part of the psyche of a deranged, cold-blooded murderer, Roger explained, to challenge the public, as if to say, Well, now that I've done this, what the fuck are you going to do about it? I'll even make it easy for you. All you have to do is figure out this. And another thing was bugging Roger. The fact that there had been no signs of forced entry and no signs of a struggle prior to or during Marsh's rape and murder. No signs of trauma whatsoever were visible on her body other than the welt on her neck. This almost suggested that Marcia Bradley might have known her assailant, perhaps even intimately, and that she'd trusted him enough to allow him into her home. This was the most unsettling aspect of the whole case, Roger had declared. If Marcia Bradley had indeed known her assailant intimately, it posed a number of disturbing and touchy questions that needed to be asked and answered. Sam set the report down and went out to the coffee machine. After pouring himself a mug and adding a shot of milk, he returned to his desk. He took a sip of the steaming brew, lit up a cigarette, and inhaled deeply, staring pensively at the blinking cursor on the computer monitor. Sam was no detective by any stretch of the imagination, but there was one thing that wasn't quite jibing in Roger's theory of Marcia Bradley's murder case. If it indeed turned out to be that Marcia had known her murderer, then why was Roger still so hell-bent on thinking that he hadn't been a local man? It would seem most likely that he had been, and that Marcia had been having an extramarital affair with him, as unfathomable as that may be. Had the murderer been an absolute stranger who just happened to have blown in from out of town, Marcia would most certainly have given her assailant one hell of a struggle during the rape, one would assume. Unless, of course, she had been either drugged or unconscious during the act, neither of which being the case. The autopsy had shown no signs of drugs in her system, and only a slight trace of alcohol. Dave Bradley had told the police that his wife had drunk a glass of white wine with her dinner that evening. 
Sam had brought this up to Roger, and Roger had gone on to say that there was really only one thing he was absolutely sure of regarding the murder case. Marsha Bradley's assailant was as clever as he was demented. He had somehow managed to pull the entire thing off without leaving any trails whatsoever. Not one of the neighbors questioned had seen anyone enter or leave the Bradley house on the night of the murder, nor had they seen or heard anything unusual that night. No strange cars parked in the vicinity, no dogs barking, nothing. It was becoming more and more apparent that the only person living who might possibly have seen the murderer was little five-year-old Tommy Bradley. Roger told Sam that Tommy Bradley was probably their only hope. He had to have heard or seen something that night. After all, there is little doubt that it was the perp who had locked the youngster up in the closet. The big problem was the fact that nobody could interrogate Tommy until the psychiatrist gave them the green light, and that could be weeks, maybe even months. In the meantime, the murderer's trail was only going to get colder and colder. Police Chief Thompson had decided best to keep fairly tight-lipped about the case for the time being, as far as the public was concerned. Sam wasn't permitted to report any of the details concerning the murder, other than the fact that Marcia Bradley had been sexually assaulted prior to being murdered by strangulation. Not a thing was to be mentioned about the message left on her body, the possibility that it might have been a serial killing, nor that the only concrete evidence found so far had been nominal forensic evidence. There was no need to get the entire town in a panic that there might be a serial killer on the prowl, the chief had contended. Thus, until something broke in the case, the observer was to portray Marcia Bradley's rape and murder as little more than an unfortunate loss to the community, and blatant testimony to the extreme violence in today's society. Sam took a drag off his cigarette and stubbed it out in the ashtray. He didn't like being muscled around like this, and he had let George McNary, the managing editor of The Observer, know it. McNary, of course, had given his usual pompous recitation about freedom of the press, and how he had always believed in it unconditionally, when he had been a reporter just starting out back in the good old days. But, McNary had gone to say, times have changed, and one has to adapt. Furthermore, he added, it was never a good idea not to comply with the police. Hence, the old fart had wimped out, as he always did, and Sam again found himself praying for the day when the ultra-conservative stubborn dickhead finally retired. Sam had already written two follow-up articles concerning Marsha Bradley's murder, and now wondered how much more he could expound upon it. The piece for Monday's edition was supposed to tie in with her memorial service today, and its intent was to more or less eulogize one of Smithtown's most beloved and popular citizens. That was fair enough, he thought but he'd much rather be reporting the facts of the case, or better yet, that her murderer had been apprehended. He glanced down at the police photo and once again felt a cold chill shoot down his spine. Somehow they would catch the low-life asshole who did this to her, and make him pay dearly for it. And he wanted to be there when it happened. He now wanted to return to the murder scene as soon as it could be arranged. Maybe, he thought, the police had overlooked something. It was a long shot, he realized, but there was always the possibility. It had happened before, hadn't it? As thorough as Roger and his men were, Sam had seen firsthand how they had missed seeing the forest for the trees a few times in the past. The edge always seemed to be missing in a lot of police work, that overwhelming drive to leave no stone unturned, that driving motivation to capture the full picture. Sam, however, was motivated beyond words, certainly more than a handful of Smithtown cops would ever be. This was a dear friend of his who had been assaulted and robbed of her life, not to mention his ex-wife's best friend. 
Sam had made a pledge to himself from the very beginning that he wasn't going to sit around on his hands while Marsh's murderer was still at large. He was going to do whatever was in his power to see that the bastard was brought to justice. Again, Sam tried to imagine himself in Dave Bradley's shoes right now. What if it had been Anne instead of Marcia who had been murdered, he wondered. How would he deal with it? Could he deal with it? He didn't even want to think about it. Sam picked up the phone and dialed Roger Hagstrom's number. For more information about the Mayday Murders and other books by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Thanks for listening.